Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, welcome to the Bible study that we are studying the book of John. It's good to see you again. We're good to have some new faces here, Yolanda and Karen. Um, we, we, are, we are studying through the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 12. I think we'll finish chapter 12 today. Uh, that section 37 through 50 would finish the chapter. This would be part 5 of the 12th chapter. Um, for those of you that are new, you can, you can catch back issues on the podcast. It's called Forming the Spirit Within. It's a podcast. It's on a website. You can look it up at bradrileyministries.com, or you can even uh, Google it, probably, for you know, like your iPhones and stuff like that, a podcast. If you have a podcast player or can download one, you can listen to it online or on your phone, either way. And you can hear. We podcast each of the Bible studies. You can catch up. And we'll study the Gospel of John. It is uh, one of one of my favorite books of the Bible. We're at a kind of a turning point in the Gospel of John today. In chapter thirteen, we really move into the last week of Jesus' life. We're already in the last week, you know, with starting with Palm, the Palm Sunday story of Jesus' triumphal entry. But but the last few days of the last week, where Jesus is with his disciples, preparing them and for his time and going to the cross. And we see that transition today as the scripture says um, last week where we ended, where we left off, and he went and hid himself from them. Now John, I think it's verse 36, it says that, that uh, Jesus went after these things. When Jesus had said this, it says he departed and hid himself from them. Them meaning the, the crowds, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, all who are <clears throat> interacting with him, trying to nail him down and trying to catch him and trying to stop his ministry. Um, as, so as we look at this last section, I want you to be thinking of two things. I want you to be thinking of, this is really a summation of Jesus' whole ministry. What John is going to give us this morning is kind of a summation of Jesus' ministry. And it's not necessarily a chronological. It's not saying Jesus said these things right after he left there. Because he actually went and hid himself. But John uses this moment, this turning point in the story, to share with us a summation of Jesus' ministry. And as well, the, I want you to ask yourself about hard-heartedness. What does it mean when John starts talking about the hard hearts of those who would not believe? Where did those hard hearts come from? How did they get hardened? Why are they hardened? Why wouldn't they just believe? So there's some difficult questions there that we want to try and delve into and, and, and see what we can understand about, about God's uh, call to all of us and whether or not we have hard hearts. Probably not because we're here in Bible study, so hopefully not. But, but yet maybe we have hard hearts on certain issues and things. Um, certainly possible. So... I'm thinking that today will be, and, and I'm so thrilled we have some new people, but I, I'm thinking today will be the last Bible study before Christmas. So don't lose interest and stop because I have some vacation days that I have to get in. I will not get to use them otherwise. 
And there's just certain, I'm trying to plan out the rest of my month and trying to figure out all the things I have to do before Christmas, and I've got to get, so those Thursdays, unfortunately, are going to come in handy for me to take off. <laughs> so sorry about that. But come back, we'll start right back up after the first of the year, and uh, that'll be starting chapter 13 then, right after the first of the year. And I, I think that's going to be an interesting study because we'll be working through towards the cross as we work march through the weeks of even the Lenten season and preparing for Easter and some of those things. I don't know exactly when we'll land at the cross because I don't know how many weeks we'll spend on each chapter. We may not even get to the cross by Easter, but, uh, but we'll work in that direction, so it's kind of good timing. These studies take a while. We go through this very slowly. We try and take verse by verse and really let the Word of God sink into our hearts and into our minds. So, as we look at this section, let's, let's start reading. I think we'll read verses 37 through uh, maybe 43, just to start with, before we finish on. So this is beginning verse 37, chapter 12. Though he had done so many signs before them, yet they did not believe in him. It was that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The Lord, and this is a quote from Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For Isaiah again said, He has blinded their hearts and hardened. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and turn from me, turn for me to heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Okay, let's stop right there. What, let's think of what's happening here. This is a kind of a long passage of quotation here. Sorry, I got a little distracted <laughs> there when I was reading. Um, I'm kind of a little ADD sometimes. If there's a noise in the hallway or noise over here or whatever, I just kind of go there, you know. Oh, wow, what was that? So sorry about that. Uh, you ever see that movie, Over the Hedge? The little squirrel guy who's always just yes. trying. That's kind of me. Some, I'm a little squirrely sometimes. and My mind spops all over the place. Um, so, it starts out with this poignant thought. Even though Jesus did so many signs, so many miracles, and that's really what the first half of what we've studied, the first half of the book of John has been about. John chose those seven special miracles to talk about, a little different than all the other Gospels do. You know, the water turned to wine, the healing of the man born blind, just some different things. He's chose seven unique signs so that in these first 12 chapters, he's showed this, this amazing Christ who is the very word of God, who is God made flesh, as it tells us in chapter 1. Come to do the work of the Father to bring salvation, not judgment. And he's rejected. It says here, he did so many signs, but they did not believe in him. That, that is an amazing statement right there. That they could not believe in what they saw. And so John goes on to say that 
the reason they're not believing is it's a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said. So he quotes a passage from Isaiah here. I'm going to turn to Isaiah. This is actually from Isaiah chapter 6. So if you want to turn back to Isaiah chapter 6, you're welcome to. Let's look at Isaiah 6 for just a little bit. Isaiah is the considered one of the great prophets, one of the major prophets. It's 61 or 66 chapters, something like in his 66 or so. I don't know how many. There's 60-some chapters in Isaiah, uh, I believe. And it's a very long book. And it has... Uh, let's see, now I've got myself curious. How many chapters are in Isaiah? 66? Is that right? Turn to it. See. Yep. 66 chapters in Isaiah. Okay. So we're going to turn to chapter 6. And let's look at just this passage... There's so much that Isaiah speaks about, but I, I think there's something we need to get clear here. Starting at the beginning of chapter 6, I want to read for you. Uh, this is kind of Isaiah's calling as a prophet of God. This is kind of his commissioning, his, his uh, uh, ordination, if you will. This is his experience that God calls him to be a prophet. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive and their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, and the holy seed is its stump. That's the whole sixth chapter, and uh, 13 verses. 
And it's, it's an amazing chapter. It's, it has two sections in there. Let's deal with the first section first. Isaiah has a vision, doesn't he? He has a vision. What's his vision of? Did you catch what his vision is of? The coming of Christ coming it, back. It, 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 it's a vision of the Lord. And I saw the Lord high and seated on a throne. He has a vision into the throne room of God, if you will, in heaven. And he sees the Lord. Well, who's the Lord? Who's the Lord? Jesus. Okay, Jesus is God. See, Isaiah has a pre-incarnate. I say pre-incarnate because this is 600 years before Jesus is born. You know, Jesus born is flesh. But, of course, Jesus is from all eternity. He is God. And, and so here is a, here's a, this is filled with overtones of our Trinitarian theology, okay? I'll bring those out to you as we look at it. But he has a pre-incarnate vision of Christ, the Lord, on the throne of heaven, God himself, if you will, and he, is, he sees it in imagery, and we don't have time to study all the imagery. I mean, this seraphim with wings covering head and feet and faces and things and flying. There's some beautiful stuff that you could study in the book of Isaiah that we don't have time for. But what I want you to hear is that in this vision, God gives Isaiah a vision of himself, and in that vision, Isaiah has to respond and what is Isaiah's response to seeing the Lord? What would your response be? If you got a vision of God in heaven, what would your response be? I think it would be hard to put in words. It would kind of be like, yeah. ah, you know, like. If Jesus Christ walked into this room, one day, now our, our theology tells us one day our belief is that he will re-enter this world physically. There will, Jesus Christ will return. And on that day, this world as we know it will come to an end. And he'll usher in the eternal age. He was apologizing about the life he lived and that he wasn't worthy of seeing this. And he said, woe to me, I'm yeah. I've unclean lips and I've done all this stuff and not worthy of what I'm seeing. Yeah, exactly. He is, he is, he is totally smitten with uh, confession. Woe is me. Woe is me. What does that mean? I'm doomed. I'm unclean. I'm a man. I'm an unclean man. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people that are unclean. Isaiah knows the people of Israel are unclean. No, but they, they've lost their first love for God. They, things are going bad in Israel. They're worshiping other gods. There's all kinds of bad stuff going on. He's about to bring his judgment upon them. They're going to be taken in the Babylonian captivity. Israel is. I mean, things are about to go bad for them really quick. And Isaiah is going to be the prophet, one of the prophets that God uses to pronounce that, that judgment. But before God can use Isaiah, Isaiah has to recognize his own sinfulness. And he does. It's the first thing. So if Jesus Christ walked into this room, what would we do? I think we would, if, if I lived through it, the, my, I might just have a heart attack, drop dead right there. Okay, But, but if I lived through it, I mean, there is, no, there is no response other 
than to fall at your knees, to fall on your faces, to say, woe is me. That's, that's Isaiah's. That's, that should be our response. I think that will be our response. The, the Bible says that when Jesus returns, Paul talks about in the, in the New Testament, that every knee shall bow. Okay. Every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Not every knee is going to bow willingly, though. Okay, So let's think about that. Not every tongue is going to confess it willingly. They'll be forced to confess it, those who would not believe, those that had the hard hearts, if you will. Okay, They won't be able to stand in, in the presence of Almighty God, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns. Oh, they can talk big today. You can shout in the world that you don't believe in Jesus and religion's a crutch and there is no God. And you can do all that you want and be strong as you can today, just like those Pharisees in John's day that he's writing about could so reject Jesus. There's coming a day when no one will have that. No one will have that power, that ability. But God gives us the freedom to choose. And Isaiah chooses to repent of his sin. And so it's interesting to me that what in, with Isaiah's repentance, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, what does God do for him? What does God do for Isaiah here? Purifies him. He purifies, beautiful. He, purifies, he not just only forgives him, he purifies him. He takes a, the, the imagery here is a coal, a burning coal from the altar of God. Well, Who's got coals? There's a lot of imagery here. A lot of this is very consistent if you were to read the book of Revelation in, in chapters 4 and 5 when we read about the worship of God that's going on in the throne room of heaven right now. The eternal worship of God in heaven. You see things like uh, censers filled with incense and smoke. What does incense do? It smokes. It creates smoke. And what is it that burns the incense? Coals. Okay. You light a coal, a little charcoal piece in it, and it creates, you put the incense on it, it creates the smoke. That's the imagery in Revelation. It's also the imagery here. I mean, Revelation was written, you know, some 700 years after this, but the imagery is the same. And if the angel takes, it says an angel took a coal from off the great altar of God where there's burning incense, and he touches it to Isaiah's lips, purifies him. And he says to him, um, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. His transgressions, his sins, your sin is forgiven. So it's not only forgiven, it says it's taken away. Why did God need to purify Isaiah? Because he wanted him to be his man. He's going to be his mouthpiece. He's going to be his prophet. It's a, it's a beautiful image that, the, that he touched Isaiah's mouth, his lips. Because Isaiah's going to be a prophet. And he's going to speak for God. And so the mouth needed to be pure. The, out, Jesus says, in the Gospels we've learned, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Okay, so there's beautiful imagery here. Of purif if you're, he purifies Isaiah's mouth. They will know that, Isaiah will know that his heart has been purified as well. Now, in, interesting, I told you there's all kinds of overtones here to our, uh, to our Trinitarian theology. Isn't it interesting that in verse 8, it says the voice of the Lord is heard, and the voice of the Lord says, Whom shall I send, 
And who will go for us? Who's us? Him and God. Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit. What do we have there? The Holy Trinity. Okay? The Bible is filled. All of these books, there's just filled with over to, When you really have eyes to see, the Trinity is all through the scriptures in amazing places. Say the that plurality again. of the, the Sorry, God. Yeah. Say that again, exactly what, what, I, what I just said. I have no idea what I just said. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. You were when you, saying that this, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, 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 you can interrupt me anytime. This is, Always. Um, shows the shows the Trinity. It, it shows us the Trinity in that the, we see God speaking of himself in a plural form. Who shall go for us? That's a plurality. But you notice that God also uses the singularity. Whom shall I send? The Godhead. Who will go for us? The Trinity. You know, God is one. It's always been the, it's always been the truth. When he said it the plural way, he was speaking as the past, our present and future as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just like us. He's, he is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always then, before eternity, and always will be. Okay, And so we see that over and over. God's giving us glimpses, things that they wouldn't have understood in that day necessarily. Nobody was walking around teaching Isaiah, oh, God is Trinity. No, not at all. Jews today would never accept that Okay, because it, they're fiercely monotheistic. God is one. You know, that was the problem with all the other pagan religions. They had lots of gods. But the great prayer of Israel and the teaching called the Shema that every Jew would recite every day of his life was from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay. So, but yet we go all the way back to the book of Genesis and it says, you know, and God created them male and female. <laughs> In our image, he says, he created. You can see the plural again in the book of Genesis. It's, it's, so it's woven through there. There's just lots of Trinitarian undertones. God was God and God was God. Yeah, so we're going to, I'm bringing that to you just as a side point to show you Trinitarian theology. Now, so Isaiah, this is like Isaiah's Pentecostal experience. This is his Pentecostal experience. What do I mean by that? The experience of Pentecost in the book of Acts for the Christian church was an experience of purifying. And wasn't it interesting that the experience was marked with what? Tongues of fire. Not only languages, but tongues of fire. Remember it said that the fire rested on each? It, the, there was like, it appeared as tongues of fire that rested on everyone's head. And they began speaking in other languages. Remember that? that why the fire? Fire is an image here of God's purifying. Fire is a purifying is. thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, fire is purifying. Um, I don't. I never understood that. You know why? You know, when I would drive as a kid, we drive. You living in Kansas, you see a lot of fields burning. You know, of course, there's wildfires in California and horrible devastation. Uh, that that's so scary. But yet in Kansas, they do these things called controlled burns. Right? You drive through the fields and you see them burning off the land, the grass and the weeds and the crop, whatever. And I, I remember thinking, that is strange. Why would they do that? Some of you probably understand it a lot better than I do. It's not that I went out and looked it up on the Internet or anything. I, I just understand because I'm not a scientist. So I don't understand. But I understand there's something. It, it, the, the charcoal that's left after the burn, right, 
puts, I think it's nitrogen, nutrients, you know, maybe nitrogen, I don't know, back into the soil. Somehow it creates nutrition for the soil. Is that wild or what? You know, some farmer listening to this podcast is going to say, boy, that guy was, he, he didn't know his stuff at all. I can't explain that to you. I just, I, I just know it's true. So um, fire purifies. It does. They used to use it when they didn't have any kind of alcohol and surgical procedures years ago. The knives and things, they would run underneath a flame just to... And burn the germs off of it, if you will. Yeah. Um, You see in... You see sometimes in movies or something where there's a wound in something and a person has to cauterize it. Use a hot iron to cauterize it, you know, to kill any germs. It always makes me, you know, just cringe in pain just thinking about it, you know. Um, but this idea that fire, so, so we know the Old Testament gives us an image of God as the refiner's fire. Okay, think about gold and precious metals and things. Um, I'm told, don't know, I've never done this, I'm not a jeweler either, not a farmer, not a jeweler. Not, but, but I'm told that a jeweler can melt down gold. Take your jewelry, melt it down, becomes liquefied, and then any impurities are that rise to the top. They float on the top of the liquid, liquid gold, and they skim the impurities off, and what's left is pure gold. So, to differing degrees, you have you know, what eighteen karat gold? You hear these terms: eighteen karat, twenty-four karat, all these things. Uh, different levels of purity as to how much that impurity has been extracted from it. And this is an image that scripture uses over and over. Fire burning as a purification process. Interestingly enough, um, and we don't have time to go there, that's where the medieval church got the idea of purgatory. You know, the Catholic church teaches purgatory. They got that idea from this idea of burning to purge and to cleanse. Okay? Um, So, I'm not teaching that there's an actual purgatory that we're that we're cleansed in, that we're cleansed in, but I think the concept of cleansing is correct. So, let's say Jesus come back to my my analogy. Jesus walks in this room right now. What has to happen for me to be holy in His presence? Grace. I need to be cleansed. His grace is the only thing that can cleanse me. You're right. I, I, but I must be cleansed. Okay. If we, we, we read the book of Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation, it tells us nothing impure will enter God's heaven, his presence, if you will. Okay. Nothing impure. So somewhere between here and who I am now and who I am when I meet Jesus face to face, I got to get pure. We have a doctrine we call the doctrine of holiness. The doctrine of sanctification, entire sanctification. The doctrine of heart cleansing, we call it sometimes, or heart purity, we call it. It's our belief. Sometimes it's, it's gotten that name baptism with fire. Okay, That Pentecostal word, baptism with fire. What are we speaking of? It's not a literal fire. We're not going to burn anybody. But we believe that with, if we totally open our hearts to God, in his metaphorical fire of his love that is so cleansing and so graceful 
And so that it will just come and burn and purge away all of our iniquities. That's what he did for Isaiah here. Okay? He burned away his iniquities. We need that experience, everyone, especially before we can really commit ourselves to his service. I really believe the church needs to do a better job of teaching this truth. And that's why I'm spending a little time on it this morning. I really firmly believe with all my heart the church of Jesus Christ, especially the church of the Nazarene, who has as its hallmark, supposedly, the doctrine of entire sanctification, must do a better job at teaching the idea of cleansing our hearts. Yes, we believe in God. Yes, we understand we've got to confess and repent and God forgives. But we can just perennially be trapped in this cycle of never feeling cleansed and never feeling purified. What God wants us to do is he wants to lead us into an experience of heart cleansing so that we become pure in our hearts. As pure as we earthly can be. Okay, That's the teaching. I believe that's the teaching of scripture, not just the teaching of of the church to have our hearts purified. And and I and God had to do that for Isaiah and he did that for Isaiah and he wants to do it for us. So fast he wants to do it for everyone. So fast forward now to the gospel of John and we're in chapter 12. Jesus has had all of these Pharisees and all of these rulers and leaders constantly in his face, constantly uh, rejecting him wanting to arrest him, wanting to get him, even seeking, making plots secretly to kill him. Why? Because he is a threat to their place in their society. There were many rabbis throughout the history of Israel. Rabbis are teachers. And you could, maybe you'd agree with that rabbi, maybe you wouldn't. But Jesus is setting up, and John's about to set up for us as we continue here, in this scripture, as we close out this chapter, he's about to continue for us the story of why this is different with Jesus. Jesus is not just any rabbi. Jesus is the Lord God. He's the incarnate word of God. And so, I think that what Isaiah is telling us here is there's a situation where there's a group of people, these leaders, they have hard hearts. He says it right here. If you look at some of these verses, he says... Uh, he even says, Isaiah, when he quotes Isaiah, he says, therefore they could not believe. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts. What's he saying about God and his relationship with these hard-hearted people? They don't care. What do you think it means when it says that God hardened their hearts? This, This is a difficult teaching that I want us to spend a little time on this morning. What do you think? It says here, God hardened their hearts. That's what it says. What does that say to us about God? We need to wrestle with these thoughts because those are difficult thoughts. Because if we don't understand them properly, we can miss the glory of who God is. Well, there's no reason why. I just read that. You just read it? It just jumped at you? It did. What? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Aha. So, there's a clue right there. When the Bible tells us that God did the hardening of their hearts, that God allowed their hearts to stay hard, okay, and not turn and not repent and not really, this is exactly what Isaiah said would happen, okay. It also says, as Sarah just read there, that he knew, 
Read it again, Sarah. What? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So what we need to discern here is that God knew their hearts. God knew their hearts. And I want us to remember that, see, God is not like a human uh, ruler, I mean, a human person with power. He, he would not just, I don't like those people, so I'm going to harden their hearts. You know, he's not doing this capriciously. He's not doing this mean uh, for mean purposes or anything. He's doing it out of his knowledge, his ever. Uh, I'm at a loss for words to describe it. God knows all things from before the world was ever created. God could look out over all of time and see everything that would ever happen, every heart that would ever live, and every thought that would ever be thought, every prayer that would ever be prayed, every action that would ever be act, acted upon, every sin that would ever be sinned. God could look at it all, and he did. And he decided to go ahead and put it all into motion and let it flow. Let's call creation. He knew what would happen. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin. He knew that you and I would sin. He knew that... Everything. He knew those Pharisees would love the praise of God more than men. But he still decided to let it go. That's what scripture is trying to tell us here. God didn't just harden their hearts for uh, no good reason. Okay? That would be mean. That would be unfair. That would be inconsistent with God as John has revealed him to us as light and love. But it's God's love that actually lets their heart be hardened. Now that's an unusual statement there. It's God's love that actually lets them keep their hard hearts. I think they were fearful. The verse right before okay. the one I just read says, Nevertheless, in my Bible, sure. nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue. Yeah. So some of the, believe, some of the leaders are believing. believing. But they're afraid. But they're afraid. And they're not willing to confess it so they have a secret faith. Mm -hmm. Okay. That just shows you how powerful this hold is that these Pharisees have over the community of Israel. And they have the power to literally excommunicate you. What, what would it be like if you were a Jew and you were kicked out of the synagogue? You, that's where, that was where you worshipped God. That's where, you're, that's where you, you received blessing and forgiveness. And the market was all there in the outer courts. I mean, you might as well not live in Israel because you, you're not Jewish anymore if you can't participate in the synagogues and the worship of the temple. You're excommunicated. That's the power they had. And they threatened to do it for anyone who would believe in Jesus. So some of these Pharisees are actually believing. We see some hearts softening, okay? Some staying hard, some softening. And God in his grace allows them to have their faith even though it's secret because they're weak. They haven't been emboldened yet. We know that a couple of them, uh, we know their names. Nicodemus becomes one of the believers. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea provides the grave for Jesus, believe. You know, these are people whose hearts softened towards themselves. So not everyone in Israel was against Jesus. Not every leader was against Jesus, but the majority were. Okay. So that even Isaiah says, when he's prophesying the downfall of Israel, way back in Isaiah, he says, um, 
Yet there will, in verse 13, yet there will be a tenth portion in it. God will always have his remnant. Okay? Not everyone. Even in, even in Israel's day. Even when Israel was taken captive to Babylon. Not everyone was, had fallen to the pagan ways. Some were true believers still. Uh, and that's always true. God always has a remnant. And even today, I mean, our world's headed the wrong direction. I mean, at least in, in, in certainly in the United States it is, uh, in the Western world. Christianity's not flourishing, and it's not gaining new converts at record pace. It's going the exact opposite way. Okay, churches are dying. Fewer people are believing. I mean, we're. Just, I mean, in many ways, we're kind of back to where they were back in Bible days, as far as we're the minority now. Okay, and that's okay because God still has a remnant, and us in this room, we're part of that remnant. We're here because we believe. We want to study His Word. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to have our hearts purified and and, and challenged, and and uh, because God has a work for us to do. Because God still needs prophets. Different than Isaiah, I mean. But God still needs prophets. God still needs ministers. God still needs people who are willing to speak for him. God is asking all of us what he asked Isaiah. Who will go for me? Who will go for us? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? God's asking you that question. He's asking me that question. I've attempted to answer that question in my life as a call to ministry. But even you... You're, you're, not, you're, you're lay people, you're not in full-time ministry, but yet you're ministers. Everyone's a minister. There was a church once that, that I read uh, on their bulletin. It said, uh, their church bulletin, on the bulletin it said, uh, pastors, and it listed the pastor's name, and it said ministers, and it said the congregation. We're all ministers. We're all here to minister the grace of God. Some of us have a vocation that is full-time ordained minister. Some of us have a vocation that's maybe a nurse or a worker or whatever, you know. But nevertheless, always a minister. So, we see hard hearts not because God capriciously made them hard, but because God knew they would stay hard. God knew that no matter what he did, they weren't going to believe. Because they loved the praise of men more than the glory of God. And they were just that corrupt. And so he allowed them to be hard. Uh, and, and, and that's how we have to embrace this thought here. To embrace it otherwise. To say, well, God, see there, God blinded him. God's a mean God. That, that makes no sense. God can't be both. He can't be mean and still be holy. Okay? He can't be unjust and still be holy. He can't be unfair and still be holy. You can't have it both ways. So that's why I often say one of our challenges in Bible study is, uh, and one of the things that I like to bring up wherever I can, is that we, what we're really wanting to do is we're wanting to see God. We're wanting to see God for who he truly is. As we study God's word, God's word is a revelation unto the world, revealing himself and his plan for all the world to those who will see and those who will hear. And so when we study it, we, we, we re I, read this, I read this last night. I'm, I think I'll read it to you. I read this in my class last night on, on the Bible when we were talking about the Bible. Um, this, is a, this is a quote from uh, a metropolitan Callistos Ware, that's Archbishop of England in England, Callistos Ware, 
uh, he, he, uh, in the Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox Church, I believe. He said this, he said, he was quoting a great saint from the Russian church in the 1700s named Saint Tikhon. And he said, this is what Saint Tikhon said, if an earthly king, our emperor, let's say, wrote you a letter, would you not read it with joy, with great rejoicing, and with careful attention? Okay, so let me bring that forward a little bit, reframe it a little bit. We don't have kings, we don't have emperors. Who would you receive a letter from that would be so important that you would be like, wow, you would be so overjoyed, you would be so thrilled, you would be, you know, maybe, you know, I'd like to say in some classes, I might say maybe the president of the United States, you know, although that's, although that's difficult to do now because so many people don't like President Trump, somebody would say, no, I wouldn't be overjoyed, I'd burn it, you know, and I mean, they missed the whole point, you know, I mean, but, but. In times past, you know, in, in President Bush's funeral was, you know, yesterday and today, President H.W. Bush and uh, George H.W. Bush, and, you know, everybody praises you after you die. You know, when he was president, none of those political commentators really liked him. You know, you watch CNN or some of those, and none of them liked George Bush back then, but now they want to praise him. Um, yes? If I open my mail today, or my mailbox, I have a letter, handwritten, hand addressed, with a return on it. That'd be the first one I open. Good point. It looks special. Yes, right. it looks it important. Special. Yes, amen. So it's not printed out on a computer or right. texted on a telephone. Right, right, right. It's special. Somebody took yes. the time to write in their own handwriting to you. I've tried to do a little of that myself. Amen. We all should. That's good. We all should. Okay. And that's one of the beautiful things I read about. Uh, they talked about President George Bush. President George H.W. wrote lots of handwritten letters to people. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And I think, too, along with that, somebody knows me. Somebody knows me. Yes. They know who I am. Yes. And they want to correspond with me. That's so powerful. So, you know, we used to teach kids how to write letters in school. Right. You know? What are we going to do when all the computers die? You know, nobody knows how to write a letter anymore. You know, I was actually taught your salutation, the greeting, who, you're, who you are, where it's from. Then there's the body of the letter. And that's what the letters of the New Testament are. They're letters. They follow that format. There was an actual style to letter writing in the ancient world. And, uh, and, and so this is what St. Tikhon was trying to if you had this letter, wouldn't you certainly read it with great rejoicing, with careful attention? But what he asks is our attitude toward the letter that has been addressed to us by no less than God himself. The Bible. So what is our attitude towards that? He goes on to say, You have been sent a letter not by an earthly emperor, but by the king of heaven. And yet you almost despise such a gift, such a priceless treasure. To open and read this letter, St. Tikhon adds, is to enter into a personal conversation face-to-face -face with the living God. When you read the gospel, that's what we're doing this morning. We're studying and reading the gospel. When you read the gospel, Christ himself is speaking to you. While you read it, you are praying and talking 
to him. That ought to change the way we look at God's holy word. Just thinking like that, what what, what St. Tikhon was trying to say, that ought to change the way we think about reading the Bible. How we treat it. It's God's letter to us. So that we can know him face to face. So that we won't have hard hearts. So that he will come in and live within us and melt our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Uh, and so that we don't love the praise of men more than God. That's the purpose of John's letter. John wrote this letter, this gospel, not because the world needed another gospel of Jesus, another, bio, another biography of his life, and a chronology of his ministry. No, that's why John chose different stories and different, his gospel is totally different than the other three gospels because he's trying to introduce us. His gospel is, is a mystical gospel. He's trying to introduce us to this God who's written us a letter, who is wanting to talk with us face to face. And he wants us to enter into the mystery that God became flesh and dwelt among us and comes to live within us. So he's trying to take our faith from just being a head faith to a heart faith. That's what John's trying to do in his gospel. That's really what all of the Bible's trying to do. And it does it with different styles of literature and stuff, like I talked about in that class last night. And, and so I want to keep that before you as you think about that, because what we're about to read now, let's finish the chapter with a few more verses here. Um, and in verse 44, the tone changes. It says, And Jesus cried out and said, Now, Remember, what John's about to do here is give us kind of a summation of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has already, as we learned in verse 36, gone away from the crowd and hid himself. He's just gone off with his own 12 disciples, and he's hid himself from the crowd. So how could he be crying out in the town square? He's not. John's not giving this in order. He's just now talking about a summation of Jesus' ministry before he goes into chapter 13 and beyond. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, has a judge, the word that I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. The Father who sent me has himself given me commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has bidden me. Wow. Jesus is now telling, John is giving us the words of Jesus very plainly to say, we can't treat Jesus just like any other good rabbi. Lots of rabbis in Israel. Lots of them had lots of ideas. Some of them even claimed to be messiahs. Some people, you could reject their teaching or you could embrace it. But what John is telling us is you can't do that with Jesus. 
Jesus isn't just any rabbi. He's God. You see me. So what does Jesus say? You see me. You've seen the Father. You hear me. You've heard the Father. You reject me. You've rejected the Father God. That's, that's just the truth. That's the cold, hard truth. Jesus and he's going to go on. He's going to say it I, I, in the next couple of chapters. Jesus is going to, this topic just keeps coming back up. There's going to be a point where Jesus just says flat out, I and the Father are one. Jesus is God. You're going to hear it from his own lips. So, there is, a, there, is a, there is a summation here, if you will. John uses this poignant, Jesus cried out and said, He's saying this is the, what Jesus' whole ministry was about. To say, you see me, you've seen the Father. You hear me, you've heard the Father. You reject me, you reject the Father. John wants us, and he puts it in the form of a cry, a crying out. You know, the world is, is the, the, the world and the Pharisees and the, the culture of that time was just saying, we're what it's all about. We're in charge. Uh, we rule the, the, the world, if you will. If we, we run this community called Israel, we, we're the leaders. You know, they've, they've put themselves in the place of God. That's what happens when we don't have God on the throne of our hearts. Somebody's on the throne of our hearts. There's no vacant throne anywhere. Okay? Somebody's on the throne of your heart. Either God or yourself. And when we talk about being pure, when we talk about purifying the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're talking about replacing who's on that throne. Taking ourselves off of the throne of our own heart and putting Christ as God on the throne of our hearts. That's the simple, beautiful message of purification. Um, there's so much I probably should be saying and I, I should do a better job, but I'm, I'm not. Um, but I, I want you to catch this thought here as we kind of come to some closing thoughts. In verse 47, Jesus says that if anybody hears what, if anybody hears Jesus but doesn't do what he says, if anyone hears him but doesn't do what he says, then Jesus says, I don't judge you. You have a judge already. The judge is the word that I've already spoken to you. Because the word I've spoken to you is, is God. God, and, and we saw that in the very beginning of the, of the book of John. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Jesus Christ is in flesh and body and humanity assumed God, God is, has assumed flesh and blood so that we could relate to him, so that we could see him, so that we could hear him. When you think about it, that is, that is the culminating point in all of history. If we miss that, we miss the greatest story ever told. You know, there was a movie once made called The Greatest Story Ever Told, and, and it's trying to talk about the life of Jesus. And they always show it at Easter time because we tend to think of the cross as the greatest story ever told. You know, and, it, and it's great. We, the truth is we can't separate the cross from the resurrection, from the, but we can't separate it from the birth of Jesus either because without the birth of Jesus, there is no cross. 
Without the cross, there's no resurrection. So where does the story begin? It begins as God coming to earth in the form of a human baby. God made flesh to dwell among us. Did you ever stop and think about why God did that? Why, why didn't he just drop Jesus on the steps of the temple and say, hear ye, hear ye, I'm here. You got to choose me or, you know, your way. He didn't do that, did he? He went the long way. Okay, let's start his birth. Okay, it's a miraculous, a virgin birth. You know, a holy miracle. And, and so Jesus had to grow as a baby. Go through all the pain of life just like you and I did. Jesus had to be born and raised with challenges of sibling rivalries, you know, and, and, and struggling with maybe other kids taunting him and, and then struggling as he, in, in his humanness, became an adult and coming through all, I mean, the things we just don't think about Jesus, but that's the truth. That's why. Why did God need to do that? God didn't need to do that. We needed God to do that. Because we know, we need a God, who we need to know that we have a God who understands us. He understands all the temptations. The gospel is going to go on to tell, Jesus Christ was tempted in every way, but without sin. He understands our weaknesses. He understands your heart. He understands your weaknesses. He understands your struggles. He's been there. He conquered it. And you say, oh yeah, he conquered it because he's God. No. In him, you can conquer it too. That's why the story of God in the New Testament tells us, as the Apostle Paul uses his phrase, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's Philippians chapter 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In my humanity, I can do nothing. But in Christ living in me, wow, nothing we can't do. Beautiful story, the greatest story ever told. Well, that brings us to the close of chapter 12. Any questions, thoughts along the way before we take a little couple-week break? And Thoughts or questions of what you've been learning in the Gospel of John? None? All minds clear? <laughs> well, um, Thank you for participating in this Bible study. Thank you, new ones, for coming. Good to have you, Yolanda and Karen. I uh, hope you'll come back. We'll, we'll just pick up after the first of the year because I, I'll have those Thursdays off between now and Christmas. And, uh, and, and so today, since we had class, again, this week I had lots of, I made chicken tortilla soup last night. So you can stay and eat some soup if you want. It's hot in the other room. I'll bring it in. So there's some chicken tortilla soup that I made. And please stay and eat it if you'd like. Let's close with a word in prayer. Oh, wait a second here. Rhonda's got it. Um, my brother's fiance, my mom just called me this morning and said my brother's fiance, um, her son is working out of town in Utah. And um, a, I guess a forklift knocked him over mm. and um, mm. ran over and broke his leg in three places. Oh, wow. Oh. Remember him. Remember yeah. him in prayer. Sure, absolutely. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of the gift of loving us so much that you came into our world, born as a baby in a manger, grew and struggled with all of the challenges of life. 
to show us that in you, in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we too can overcome. So Father, thank you for the gift of the Gospel of John. Thank you for uh, what we're learning as we try to study it. Would you bring these words back to our hearts and minds to encourage us and to strengthen us as we go through our daily lives. And be with us now and until we meet again. We ask this in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.